It's the year 2000 and Robbie Griffiths is enjoying the thrills of his up-and-coming stable, a place bustling with action and movement and certainly a far cry from the three-person endeavour it once was. Robbie's team is growing. His horses are all class and speed, and given this, he posts an advertisement for a position in his office. He and Sharani need extra hands on the administration front. Stumbling across the job notice was a young man named Simon Miller, who worked at the National Australia Bank at the time, but who'd made sure to spend weekends in Geelong, where local trainer Charlie Goggin was based. After seeing Robbie's ad, Simon eagerly reached out to the Cranbourne stables. Simon is a very effervescent, likeable, uh, larger-than-life character that come to me for a clerical position. So I was working um, working in the bank and part-time with Charlie Goggin down Geelong and there was a job going through the winning post and I thought, oh, that that's a good transition to get out of the bank and I needed an excuse. He rang us up looking for an administration job coming from the banking sector of the world. He's very highly intelligent. But Simon wasn't the only one that was keenly scouring through the winning post. The job had, unfortunately for him, already been filled by the time he made contact with Robbie. But there was something charming about his insistence, his willingness to work, his want to secure himself a position in the stables. And then Griffo told me no. Robbie was a man immersed in an industry that wasn't necessarily kind to its loyal followers. And in Simon, he saw somebody who'd grown accustomed to annual leave and weekends and 8am starts and all of the conventional ways of living and working that wasn't afforded to those in racing. This he made sure Simon was aware of. But Simon was hungry for a change of scenery and knew that his affinity with the racetrack was a dream he wasn't going to let go of, despite the warnings. Yeah, well, he said you'll lose public holidays and annual leave and leave a good job to do this 365 days a year, seven days a week. And I was coming no matter what. He said, oh, well, I want to work uh, in racing. And I said, well, unfortunately, the job you're after has been filled, but we do have a casual position picking up man- manure, basically cleaning out boxes, casual position, $18,000 a year. He said, I'll take it, which was a bit of a surprise because he come from a higher position in the banking world and was a big drop from where he was. And I said, what do you want to do that for? He said, uh, and what do you know about horses? He said, well, my girlfriend has one and I like backing them. And I peed myself laughing because it was not the type of thing you sort of hear coming into a racing stable. Simon had always had horses in his peripheries. His family had always been involved in some way, shape or form. And now it was his time to start from the ground up. Little did he know at the time that his involvement at the Griffiths Racing Stables would be close to a decade-long investment, seeing him climb up the ranks to become Robbie's foreman. Uh, but the pun always intrigued me when I was young. My uncle was a bookie and he used to go to races when I was young. The art of doing form and then... Wanted to, wanted to sort of head down the training path. Simon is extremely honest, extremely straight up. He says it as it is, but he had this massive passion for racing, had a minimal understanding of what is required, but had a massive ability to want to learn. He had a big sponge. All he wanted to do was learn, learn, learn. He had uh, he's very intellectual and with that intelligence that he had or that intellect that he had 
he was going to just go as high and as fast as he could, he was going to learn and become anything that he wanted to be. Simon had joined the stables and Robbie's life during a period when the business was flying. It wasn't the humble make-do enterprise started by a pair of barely 20-year-olds and their accomplice Philby. It was the sort of establishment where the promise of success could be felt and appreciated by all of those who came into contact with the Cranbourne stable. It was absolutely exhilarating. Oh, it was a big operation from where I'd come from down Geelong. You know, we had eight to ten in work and then you wheel down there and you've got 50 floating around, floating around so you had to get your head around the horse numbers pretty quick. Um, and then I wasn't up to speed with sort of uh, the tricks of diets and legs and um, the actual art of training. So uh, slowly, just as each week progressed, he sort of taught me a little bit more. And and then when I he felt I was across that area, he'd show me another area. And so I knew the basics, but never knew the tricks. Robbie was a sort of mentor to a man who would later become a wonderfully successful trainer himself. In Simon, Robbie shared a passion for the quality of the craft, for embracing the lives and specialties associated with each four-legged athlete that entered their stables. In Simon, Robbie saw a pure, childlike curiosity that he himself exhibited as a young man, measuring his greyhound's diet and assessing his weight. The same child who would later attribute that cunning analysis onto a vastly differing collection of horses. So with that enthusiasm, uh, Simon joined the team and sure enough, he started at the bottom level and he was picking up poo, as, as, as it says, and uh, he was cleaning out boxes and he started at the bottom and he worked his way up. And, but his enthusiasm was infectious. He was great to work with and worked his way up to assistant trainer and then went out to train himself one day. And that journey from start to finish before he left our stables was nothing short of very entertaining, very exciting, and it was very fun. It was great fun and we are great mates and uh, will remain great mates forever. And the whole journey of Simon Miller in our stable was nothing short of entertaining, exciting and fantastic fun. Yeah, it was good. It was good. I got in the comfort zone there, so um, and just knew how the sta stable operated with the eyes closed. And the only, th the only thing I really had to uh, be aware of was the new babies coming through, what they do and don't look like. Simon Miller was around for many a great horse, including perhaps most notably Dandy Kid. However, there was another horse to join the Griffiths Racing Stables around that time and left an impression on Victoria's racing industry. In the stables appeared a grumpy grey named Big Pat, who would take Robbie and his team into the mounting yard of Flemington for a shot at the race that stops the nation, the Melbourne Cup. It was a rags to riches story, and Peter Merton's uh, via Dean Lester, great mate, and you know Dean's like a brother to me, and um, Dean was managing Peter Merton's, and Peter Merton's got the ride on Big Pat. Chased the ride on a horse called Big Pat in 2001, uh, and uh, we eventually got the ride on him. And he, he rode him through to win a uh, South Australian Derby and a VRC St Ledger, and he rode him in a Caulfield and Melbourne Cup. And uh, that was the origins of the uh, connection with Big Pat. And uh, Pete uh, always had a lot of time for the horse, and, and we rode him all the way through. 
The South Australian Derby is a notable race held during the Adelaide Autumn Carnival. It's designed to test some of the best three-year-old horses over 2,500 metres, especially those late maturing that are itching for their chance at Group 1 success. Big Pat was a rags-to-riches story, a horse of unfashionable pedigree, sired by full and by and out of the dam put in place. But Robbie was never one to shy away from horses with low pedigrees and wasn't going to stop then, despite how uncertain at times their success or failure often is. Well, the cheap pedigree horse is basically uh, a, a pedigree of a horse of, a, say, an unfavourable or um, a pedigree of a horse that uh, is not in fashion. So, you know, in, say, terms that we're, we're more familiar with, like a, a Mercedes-Benz is a high-fashion car or a BMW is a high-fashion car or, you know, you have high-fashion, you know, clothing, whereas... Um, full and by was a stallion that wasn't overly fashionable in the, in the pedigree stakes of the, uh, of the racehorse, you see. Big Pat was once the favourite for a Melbourne Cup a few years prior and returning home to a disappointed stable and even more disheartened ownership group, Big Pat was up for grabs and Dean believed, given Robbie's interest in rehabilitation and the progress of his stables at the time, that he could provide an exhilarating home for the young grey gelding. Yeah, a fellow called Peter Tullock, who only virtually had one horse in work, trained up at Warburton, trained him up the hills of Warburton, and it was sort of a, a very obscure story, but he, he came from all of that to be Melbourne Cup favourite, and unfortunately, the year that he ran for Peter in the Melbourne Cup, in 2001, it rained on the day, and the horse didn't like it, and he finished, I think about 15th or 16th, he finished well down the track, but... Uh, he then pressed on and he ran a good race uh, in an Adelaide Cup about uh, 18 months later. And uh, then it, uh, they pressed on again and they ran him at Mooney Valley in uh, late May of 2003. And he ran about sixth and I used to always have a debrief with Peter on the way home from the races and uh, said, oh, the old boy was just a bit below form. He said, you know what? He said, they were that disappointed. He said, I think they might sell that horse. And uh, from that I rang Robbie and... We rang a bloodstock agent, Cameron Cook, and by that was Saturday night, and by Sunday night, subject to a vet approval, we purchased the horse. Overwhelmed with Pat's already burgeoning success and now apparent decline, Robbie put his trust in Dean and Peter's judgment and gave Big Pat a go. It seemed only appropriate that Peter Mertens follow Robbie in his adventures, as he'd already established a rapport with the gelding, and in ways a lot of jockeys often struggle to exhibit, he felt confident letting Pat have his head occasionally. He was the sort of horse that required independence. He'd been riding him throughout his journey in the early part of his career when Peter Tullick was training him for his ownership group then. And throughout the next, uh, you know, next 12 months, he, he didn't regain uh, or hold his regular race form and he fell out of um, consistency and he wasn't a regular winner or consistent place getter and wasn't holding his um, status in the racing world or running well like he used to. Or, and all of a sudden, uh, for whatever reason, and probably because of his lack of consistency with his race form, the, the ownership group decided to sell him and, um, and they, they obviously lost belief that he was going to be the horse that he promised to be back in 2001. So in the... Uh, 
in the middle of 2003, um, Dean Lester rang me uh, and said, uh, Big Pat can be purchased. You know, I'd been following him since he won the, you know, the, the Group 1 South Australia Derby because Peter Mertens was a very dear friend and been riding a lot of winners for our stable. When the performance is there and uh, they lose form, maybe a change of environment or a change of ideas, and I certainly thought that uh, Robbie would be the man to do that because uh, I'd seen him with a few established horses, yeah, turn them around and get them re-motivated, and uh, it was just as long as he was sound. And he was so sound that uh, Peter Angus, who invented him, was all but going to take a share in the horse. He, he said he, for a horse that's had the racing he'd had over the distance, and that he was as sound as he could be. So uh, the, the sale went ahead, and... Uh, uh, Lenny Quilty went and picked him up about four or five days later and, uh, and we then had a horse that uh, by the first week of June we were plotting towards the Melbourne Cup. Robbie was full of hope alongside his ambitious team. He trusted those in senior positions. He had to. He knew that growth could only happen if you're able to humbly acknowledge that you had things to learn. And so he did learning alongside Dean, making sense of Big Pat alongside Peter, and also, often, riding the Big Grey himself, which afforded him the capacity to get a real feel for his stride, for how he navigated the track, for the hope he'd instilled in the Griffiths Racing Stable. Big Pat was to be a Melbourne Cup runner, and whether or not Robbie believed himself capable of playing in the A-team, he had no choice. So Peter Merton said, I, I do, I think you should buy him. He said he feels like he's got all the energy that he had when I won on him in the South Australian Derby. He said, I don't know why he's not running well. He said, um, that's something that, you know, you and your team and your vets and all your team of network of uh, professionals will have to work out. He said, but I think he's got the enthusiasm to run like he used to as a three-year-old. He said, so... You know, send your team of experts and vets out to do the necessary test, and if he passes them, um, buy him. The project had started. With Robbie's invested team, rehabilitation and refinement was on the agenda, and Big Pat was well and truly ready to join the Griffiths Racing Boot Camp. It echoed Robbie and Shirani's preliminary training practices, which were very centred around restoration and aspiration. Simon Miller was flexing his newfound skills and finding intrigue in the entire pursuit. And Dean Lester was guiding Peter Mertens and Robbie through the process of getting to know the Grey Gelding as well as his anticipated potential. When we first started training, digressing back to the beginning of our uh, training life, Shirani and I spent most of our energy rehabilitating horses that weren't in form and some of them had physical problems, some were psychological, but whichever whichever way you look at it, they we had to rejuvenate their enthusiasm to race. Part of what it means to have hope and want to reinstate a horse's potential is to believe it, even when the morale is low. Even in those moments, exchanging curries for rent, living in a back bungalow, you had to think of yourself as victorious, as a successful horse trainer, as somebody with a stable full of champions. But Robbie was at a stage in his training career where not only did he have to believe in his own promise to himself and his stable, he had to sell it. Big Pat didn't have the potential to be a Melbourne Cup runner. He was a Melbourne Cup runner. And you were a sucker if you didn't see him that way, 
the way Dean and Simon did. The campaign was obvious and exciting. physical or both the package of uh of of that to getting them back into the best possible place they could be in to race well so we thought you know what we're up for the challenge here wouldn't it be great to try and get big pat back into the melbourne cup in in this november being an ex-jockey and riding from a young age and riding in races from 16 and being a jockey and didn't I never fulfilled that opportunity to ride in the Melbourne Cup but it was very close to it didn't didn't get that chance it felt like here's my opportunity here's my chance this is what I want you know Robbie had tasted the sky before he'd been a young skinny thing atop a world-class athlete tearing up the turf as he turned a corner hearing nothing but the sound of hooves digging up the grass and the hot breath of horses and the screaming of an absolutely exhilarated audience when you're that close to adrenaline in its purest form, that chase doesn't go away easily. Robbie wanted to live vicariously through Peter as he plotted the cup course. He wanted to know the sort of victory he traded in for his role as a trainer. It felt like it was finally his time and that Big Pat was the horse to see his dream through. Big Pat was a quiet achiever. He wasn't showy or confident or affectionate. He got the job done and he got it done well. In his time at Cranbourne, he established a unique bond with another relatively quiet old soul, none other than Maury, Philip Moore's hilariously gruff father who strapped Big Pat throughout the entirety of his career at Griffiths Racing Stables. Describing Big Pat is Dean Lester. Uh, he was a bit of a loner. He was a big, big sort of, uh, he was a big fellow. Uh, he was compliant, but uh, I think he just liked his own space. Uh, he was happy enough. He, he didn't need pampering. He didn't need anything much. He just needed his work and his feet. And, uh, yeah, he, he got about his business. So, uh, yeah, he wasn't one that uh, he, he went up and gave a, he'd go to the stables and give a cuddle to because he just, he sort of looked the other way. And describing Graham Moore, Dean had this to say. <laughs> well, uh, Graham and him got along very well, and uh, they, were, they were probably uh, a match made in heaven. And uh, yeah, Graham did a, a great job with him, uh, strapping him, uh, especially Melbourne Cup day. Very similar, yeah, to Graham Moore. <laughs> He's rough and gruff and <laughs> doesn't tolerate too much fuss either. He, uh, they got along very well together. Very similar in colour and very similar in nature and uh, they look very similar in the mountain yard together. The father of Philby, Maury, is responsible for Philby Jr. <laughs> Graham's been um, part of our fabric for, from the beginning of the business starting, very much like Philby. 
Um, the Moore family have been very much uh, part of the uh, Griffiths racing uh, from the get-go, so uh, Shrani and I are very proud of that. Graham was like the rest of the team, pinching themselves on Cup Day. The Melbourne Cup whirlwind was nothing less than that, an absolute tornado of excitement and thrill. After winning the Saab quality, which was only his fourth start with Robbie, Big Pat edged that little bit closer to the Melbourne Cup, bravely securing the qualifying spot. Peter Mertens had already started dieting to ensure he could ride the stoic grey into placing in the nation stopper. Pandemonium just had three days from the Saturday to the Tuesday. It was carnage. It was absolutely magical and a, and a great time. And I just, I remember thinking after, and I pity the people that have the Melbourne Cup favourite from sort of six or seven weeks out, because three days was nerve-wracking enough to have a runner. Uh, I remember Cup morning, I, I, I was obviously working on radio and I had to drive into Carlton to be there at eight o'clock and I was that nervous and got up early, got ready. And I had a bit of time to fill. I thought, I'll drop in at the track. And I dropped into the track and I pulled up right outside Robbie's stalls. And there's Robbie holding Big Pat's leg in the air. And my heart sunk. The road to the Melbourne Cup always has its dramas. In a terrifying twist, Big Pat had stumbled into some trouble at the track that morning. And Robbie was quick to mend his spot in the historic race. He was in training for 17 weeks and I rode him every day and everything went perfectly well, the whole campaign. And then on Melbourne Cup Day, I was giving him a light exercise and as I was coming back from the infield, um, he stood on his racing plate, pulled it off and stood right on, back on that plate which had twisted and stood on the nail and it went and it drove straight into his foot and blood was pouring out everywhere and I quickly jumped off him and um, waited there until the farrier ran out and quickly helped the situation and I was in, all, I was in a state of stress and we quickly uh, removed the, the nail that was uh, embedded into his sole and had the vet there clean the sole. I was worried about you know the bruising it would have caused and we taped up his foot and luckily they seemed to think both the vet and the farrier seemed to think it would be okay and it wouldn't affect his performance in the melbourne cup i remember holding his foot up holding his foot up for a while while griff ran around and got pato and um come around and he tacked it back on he said no we're sweet so we dodged the bullet quickly got out of the car and i said what, what's going on and he said no he's just sprung a shoe, I don't want him to stand back on it, and uh, the farrier came, put it on, everything was fine, and uh, we got to the cup, but I can tell you for about 10 seconds there on cup morning, uh, I thought, my goodness, this couldn't happen to us on cup morning, could it? But uh, it didn't, and we got there, and uh, he did us proud. He probably should have finished a bit closer, he was the, it was a, as the Chief Steward Des Gleeson would uh, attest to, it was a very cleanly run Melbourne Cup, with one exception is that Big Pat got in trouble and he's the only horse basically I've got to mention in the Stewards report for about 400 metres he got held up for a run whilst Maccabi Diva was surging on and uh, I think if he'd followed Maccabi through he might have run third or fourth but uh, tenth to us was uh, something special anyway. So things like that went wrong on race day and then um, then we're at the races and uh, Peter Mertens unfortunately had to ride extremely light he rode 49 kilos which was way too light for Peter 
he rode in beautifully from a wide barrier and he, he, we had a game plan to follow Maccabi Diva, the favourite, it was the first Melbourne Cup win. And we said, uh, if we can just stay behind her the whole way, that, that was our best chance to try and run 10th. So he passed t- 14 horses. When Big Pat came 10th in the 2003 Melbourne Cup, it inevitably changed how Robbie felt about himself and his practice, as well as his capabilities. But it also cemented the legitimacy and strength of his team, from bankers turned stable hands turned foremans to gruff old grandpas like Maury to Peter Mertens and Dean Lester and importantly the strength of Big Pat when it came to securing his spot and redeeming himself. You only get those opportunities based on the the type of um, business model you have or the type of opportunities that are presented in front of you. We're in the cup, you know. This is, this is, this is the Melbourne Cup, you know. So knowing that we were in it's from Saturday night, you know, to Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, you know, the Monday, the, the the pre-cup parade, you know, all the talk about, you know, you know the cup sweeps and all the activities that go into the cup, you know. Thank you for joining us in listening and subscribing to Under Starters Orders. We appreciate your incredible support. Next time, we meet the likes of Confederate Kid and look at all of the ways growth and success affords a stable the opportunity to change. I'm your host, Greg Miles. Until next time.